we're all searching for something that we needed but couldn't get. By going through the emotional source code, you discover what that is. And when you discover what it is, your anatomy of meaning changes. When your anatomy of meaning changes, you get to own your original identity, the truth of who you are, which transforms your beliefs, it transforms your values, and it transforms the way you behave. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here. I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting with the great Dove Baron today. Today's conversation is transformative and there's really not many words that I can share that have not been said in today's conversation and that have not been felt through this transformative conversation, but it is powerful and it is one that helps you understand the basic need of life or the basic need in our life then versus the self-actualized realization that we can create in our life. And there's a big gap and there's a big chasm to cross. And in today's episode, you're going to learn how to cross that chasm. You're going to learn how to go further faster. You're going to learn how to expand, how to elevate your performance, how to elevate your fulfillment, how to elevate the purpose and the reason behind doing all that you're doing in your real estate business and in your personal life. Buckle up. Today's episode is mind-blowing. It is powerful and it is life-changing. Elevate Podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. I'm your host, Tyler Chesser, and I'm a professional real estate investor and entrepreneur. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar today. And I just want to invite you to pay the fee. The fee is to pay it forward. As Dove shares in this episode, do not hoard this pay it forward and pass it along because unlimited abundance is your birthright and as you pay it forward that flows to you in a much greater capacity in fact avalanches of abundance are coming your way and by the way i want to encourage you to give us a rating review or subscribe or follow elevate podcasts and wherever it is that you listen or watch podcasts it is very powerful for us it's very important to us and if you want to receive tremendous value ongoing through this podcast we really need to hear your feedback and we really appreciate your feedback so if you've already done so thank you so much and if you're watching on youtube give us a thumbs up and of course don't forget to share without further ado i want to introduce you to Dove Barron, who is the founder and CEO of Dove Barron International. He is a preeminent expert in helping leaders create life and work meaning. His models and strategies of the emotional source code and the anatomy of meaning are used by leaders in business and government worldwide. By the way, this is one of the highest sought after speakers and consultants, coaches across the world, someone who's, who really works with the most elite performers across the world. So we are receiving a massive gift in him spending time with us today. And by the way, we are worthy of this gift. We are worthy of receiving and immersing ourselves in absolute transformation. So I wanna encourage you to buckle up, get your notebook ready because I've got pages and pages from this conversation. I wanna encourage you to do the same as well because it's action oriented and it will speak directly to your soul. Without further ado, please enjoy this fantastic conversation with Dove Barron. Dove Barron, welcome to Elevate, my friend. How you doing? Thank you, sir. It's good to be here. I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to serving this audience, feeling good, ready to go. I know. And then, you know, obviously coming off of a bit of a sickness here, bouncing back, you know, better than ever. Very excited about this conversation. I know we're going to serve very high level listeners today to really expand beyond their wildest dreams. And, you know, and a lot of the work that you've done over the years has been for the exclusive of the exclusive. So I think we are all going to receive a tremendous gift in this conversation. And while we dive into this conversation, I want to help the listeners understand a bit more about you. You know, because we're going to be talking about some concepts that are unbelievable and game changers. But let's start with you. Talk to me a little bit about your upbringing, your backstory. I appreciate you asking, Tyler. Thank you. The backstory is long and way too long for this show. But the truth of the matter is I was born in abject poverty. I was surrounded by violence and crime and addiction and all kinds of abuse. And it was not a pleasant environment. 
And it was a place you didn't get away from. I was born in Northern England and very working class, industrial kind of place that if you walk out on the street and you're out there for half an hour and you come back, you have a black ring around your collar that's just from the grime. So it was very industrial. And it was kind of a place where people believed this is my lot. Actually, that was a language pattern. This is my lot in life. You got to make the best of your lot in life. And I never felt that way even as a small child. And even though it was all poverty and struggle and all those kinds of things, and uh, there were several things that transformed me or, or fed that idea within me. When I was 10 years old, I walked into the living room. It's interesting because as we record this, it's appropriate, but I, I won't get to say why until I go in further. But I walked into the living room and I saw my mom crying, which was not particularly unusual, but she was crying. And I said, why are you crying, mom? And she's wiping her eyes and pushing her glasses up as the tears are flowing. And she just looks at the TV set and she says, he's dead. I said, he's dead? And I look at the TV set and there's nobody there I recognize. I mean, this is not a, a soccer player. You know, this is not a, somebody from Coronation Street. This is not somebody I would recognize. And so I listen. And all of a sudden I hear, I have a dream that one day became just hammered silent and listened as Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. And I went away and asked my uncle about who he was. My uncle was sort of the brains of the family and learned about how he followed Gandhi's path and a path for peace. And I became very inspired. Now, what I was inspired by was not just his civil rights, which I'm certainly a big proponent of, but it was more the fact that here was, now you got to remember, I'm 10 years old. So in the mind of a kid, here was this black Christian minister on the other side of the world, relative to a child, on the other side of the world, who has impacted my mother, a white Jewish woman, on a different part of the world, and he's made her cry at his end of his life. And that idea, that level of impact is possible, sort of lit a spark in me. It fired me. And then when I got to be 14, I was this weird kid. A lot of time I wasn't doing what other kids were doing. And it was a sunny day and my mom came in the living room and I was watching TV and I would watch BBC Two. Back in those days, there was only three TV channels. Yes, I'm that old. And BBC Two was kind of the, the you know, the bit more posh, you know. It had documentaries and it had Shakespeare, it had ballet. Always loved BBC Two. I'm going to fight with my siblings about trying to get it onto this channel. And it was a sunny afternoon. Nobody's down watching BBC Two and watching a documentary. My mom came in and she said, what are you watching? I said, I don't know. Because it was a silent documentary. It was all done with, with scenery. And it was shot across four seasons. It was 10 years, but made to look like four seasons. And you meet this character. It's a girl. And then later on, she meets a guy. And later on, they have a kid. And they travel from one coast of a, of a country to the other coast. And my mom said, what are you watching? I said, I don't know. And she said, well, what is it? And I said, I don't know. She says, where is it? I said, I, I think it's America. And she goes, oh, yeah? And I said, yeah, I'm going to go live there. And she says... You know, I'm 14, right? In the ghetto. And she goes, okay, son. You know, and leaves the room. It wasn't America. It was Canada. How do I know? I did leave and I left at 21. I began to travel the world and study with great teachers around the world. I moved here when I was 32 years old. And I'd lived here for about three years. And I'd been to Stanley Park many times, but I'd never paid attention. And I went into the entrance of Stanley Park. And as I went into at the entrance of Stanley Park, there were these beautiful Native American totem poles that stand beautifully high with the park as the background. And if you look the other way, it's got the city as the backdrop across the ocean. Gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And I remember that was the last scene of the movie, of the documentary when I was 14. So I lived exactly where I said I was going to live at 14. That's amazing. It was an interesting manifestation of my reality, you know, without any conscious, I'm going to, you know, I've got to go find those totem poles. I'd pass those totem poles probably a thousand times and never even noticed them. But this was the day. Wow. You know what it, it makes me think of is, you know, inputs and, you know, our environment, how that can shape our future. And you were talking about being impacted by this individual that we all know, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you know, an individual who made a tremendous impact on the world, but he impacted somebody in this corner of the world that you would have never really anticipated. And that lit this spark within you. And you had this drive to say, you know what, I want to make an impact. 
and, you know, pulling yourself out of this abject poverty, surrounded by crime, violence, addiction, you know, you knew that there was something more than suffering and abuse. You know, you almost had this innately within you. But then you were talking about pulling out and traveling and studying with some of the world's greatest thinkers, doers, you know, later pulling out and running multiple companies. Talk to me about that experience. I want to go back and, and talk a little bit about some of the lessons that you learned growing up in poverty as well. But talk to me about the experience pulling out of this poverty as well. Well, first of all, as a kid, I was this very strange child, as I said, so much so that my mom thought I might be possessed um, because I'd be talking about things that are on the other side of the veil. Now, let's remember this adult is a very science guy. I you know, studied neurosciences. I've studied uh, quantum physics, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm into this very, what appears to be a woo-woo thing to my mom. And so she ships me off to the rabbis and I begin to study with them as a small boy. Um, they sort of take me under their wing. And it helped me to be at peace with what I was experiencing. They didn't, never made me right. They never made me wrong. They just were really good at asking me questions. And the wonderful thing about that world, particularly in Lubavitch, in Hasidic Judaism, is that there's an old saying, if you get five Hasids in the room, so five Hasidic rabbis in the room, you get six opinions, right? And so it's never about the answer. It's about digging deeper. And that trained my mind very well. So by the time I was... 10, I taught myself Rani Yoga, and I'd made myself a promise in my teens that I was going to study these different religious philosophies. So when I was 21, I'd made this promise to myself, and at 21, I created an opportunity to leave the UK, and you know, I had a job, I, I created a position that would allow me to study. So I began to study Buddhism, the Tao, Vedantic Hinduism, which is Vedantic philosophy, Kabbalah, and Gnostic and Coptic Christianity with all these different teachers, living and learning with them all, studying with them, and really just digging deeper and deeper into the spiritual path. And after a while, I mean, I was besotted with it. I mean, it was absolutely my life. I was meditating four hours a day and still running businesses and still studying, right? So I was still doing all those things. And I got really sick suddenly of all these people who could tell me which way my sharka was spinning, but couldn't get their shit together to pay the rent or hold down a relationship. So I was like, well, okay, this is really great, but you know, what's driving that? So I started to study psychology and I studied psychology and I became a Jungian therapist. And I loved Jung uh, because Jung bordered on the metaphysical, tied the metaphysical understandings into a psychological understanding and made me think in a different way. But being a therapist had no appeal whatsoever because I really had no interest in listening to people whine and complain. So I then started to study what was back in the 80s called psychology of excellence, very early 80s. Psychology of excellence today is called leadership, but it was athletes, entertainers. It was people who were doing the best of the best. A Greek CEO that I got to know very well, who had a very successful business that was across Australia where I was living at the time. And he took me under his wing and I started to study him and study how he ran businesses and another guy who ran a national menswear company and just started learning all these things. But what I found was that how much soul they lacked. So they had these brilliant strategies and could live a lifestyle that was unbelievable, unimaginable to me, but it didn't have any soul to it. So this was fascinating. So I've got the spiritual, I've got the psychological, I've got the successful, but there's no connection. And then in 83, I was in Melbourne on a break and went into a bookstore. I'm a massive reader. I started finding some books and found a book on quantum physics. It wasn't, it didn't say quantum physics. I'd never heard of quantum physics. It was actually a book. I pulled something out and this book sort of fell out and it was a little thin book. And it was Hugh Everett III's Theory on Multidimensional Reality. And I could only read every other page because one page was in math and one page was written. So I just ate it. I mean, I just consumed this book and became fascinated with multidimensional reality and how it worked and what was driving it. And that led me into other, other parts of quantum and started to study that. And then later on, started to put it all together in the understanding of what resonance is. So if you want to understand what resonance is, you've no doubt seen the experiments where somebody scatters sound on top of a metal plate and then runs a violin bow down the side of it and you see that the send moves into patterns. That's resonance, okay? And beginning to understand that in the context of universal resonance, not as some woo-woo thing, but as the formation of all things 
and from understanding that quantum physics shows that below the particle is the quantum wave. So the quantum wave takes form. How does it take form? And so I began to formulate how those things come together through personal emotional quantum resonance fields. And that led me into developing and architecting what is now called the emotional source code. And the emotional source code is very personal. So it's you. Yours is not the same as mine. It's not the same. Yours is not the same as your mom's, your dad's, your brother's, your sister's. But it is in a field that is the same. So you have a family resonance. You have your own personal, emotional, quantum resonance field that is your source code, but you also have your organization has one, your company has one, your city has one, your country has one, the planet has one. So understanding that is like so fascinating because a lot of the things that people are going, what the is going on with the world? Why are things happening this way? I can show you the source code of it. And when you get to the circle, you go, oh, okay, it makes sense now. Oh, that was a long way around. Sorry, no, no, man. this is so good. And by the way, I'm I'm now really connecting the dots in terms of where you came from to what you're doing now and, and the value, the massive, unbelievable value that you're adding to other people, other leaders, other organizations. And, you know, one of the things that you said, I just wanted to comment on because it, it really resonates. And we were talking about resonance, so no pun intended, but it really resonates with me in terms of you met so many people who were tremendously successful in business that lacked soul. I mean, like I never put words to it, but I've seen that. I, you see that so much. It's like, you know, where's your depth? And, you know, it's like, okay, that's great. You're earning more money. You're creating tremendous value in the marketplace, but how about your soul? And, you know, it almost feels like looking back, the key to you being able to draw delineations from different sort of backgrounds, whether it's spirituality, science, business, it's all about that multidisciplinary learning. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, my title is that I'm a polymath. And I just recently put out a video talking about how polymaths will rule the world as AI takes over. We have lived in a cult of specialization and most people have gotten very focused on that. And that's great. It's good. But you're going to get killed by AI. And unless you are multidisciplinary, unless you understand how to tie all those different things together, you're going to be dead in the water. So in my work with very large organizations, I talk about engagement as an example. And I go, okay, how's your engagement? Oh, you know, we, we did this and we're pretty good. Well, all right, tell me how you know. Well, our stats came back. Well, we did this survey, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's, that's wonderful. Now, if I go around and check the engagement of your people individually, what will I find? Oh, I think you'll find it good. Okay, let's find out. So I'll go undercover. It's not. It's never good. It's rarely good. I mean, I'm about to say good. I'm, just, I'm talking about good, not great. It's rarely even good, right? It's below, it's less than 40% for most organizations. 33, 32, I mean, it's terrible. When I look at that, I say, what are you missing? So I'll give you an example. I brought into a company and they say, you know, millennials are a pain in the ass. We can't get them to work. They don't want to do their thing. And this is pre-pandemic. So we're talking about pre-great resignation, pre-great, you know, any of those things, right? Okay, let's walk through it. So we walk through it and I go, well, what's your culture? So they hand me a pamphlet. That's not your culture. That's a pamphlet. No, no, it outlines our culture. Okay, but that's not your culture. And they go, what do you mean? Let me explain. You have two cultures. You have the one you think you have. That's the one on paper. That's your brochure. That's the one you like to think you have and you tell yourself you have, but it's not your culture. That's actually your subculture. And your subculture is actually your culture. And they go, what do you mean? I said, let me ask you a question. What's a rule you have around here? And they said, well, we, you know, we're a bit old school around that. We have a rule that you have to start work at nine. Everybody has to be at the desk working at nine. Well, okay, cool. How many people show up before or after nine? They go, no, we're, everybody's really good. And I go, if I go into any department, I guarantee you that's not the case. And they go, what do you mean? And I said, if the leader in that organization shows up at 10 after nine, everybody knows you only have to be there at nine, eight after nine. That's it. So your culture is always developed by the leader, leader of the, the organization overall, but also of each department. And its leadership is permission. And permission is by their behavior. And permission forms the culture. If you say, we don't do that here, but you do it. Well, it's different. I'm the boss. No, that's the culture. That's how it works. So that's the level of engagement. So I say, number one question for you, if you want to understand, if you want to improve your engagement, let me ask you a simple question. How engaged are you? What do you mean? You, you're the boss. I'm talking to you, the CEO, the founder, the owner. How engaged are you? And maybe they're really engaged. And I go, how engaged are your board beyond profit? You can't have an engaged culture if you're not engaged because leadership 
creates permission. So this is the key we've got to understand. If you want to upgrade your culture, you want to upgrade your organization, you have to take personal responsibility that you are an example. Now, that is a resonance. And they go, well, what do you mean? All right. You have a car. Yes. Do you have a radio in the car? Yes. Okay. Maybe it's an old school radio. We want it dials. Well, no, it's not. But you can get radio stations, right? Traditional radio stations. You go, yeah. I go, okay. Where's the cable from the radio station to your car? And how does it unravel wherever you drive? And they go, well, that, that's ridiculous. It doesn't. Of course it doesn't. It's a radio wave, isn't it? And they go, yeah. And I go, so if your radio station is tuned to 95.3, and that's the pop station, and you like that station, you listen to the pop, but maybe one of your kids gets in the car and they're messing around and they knock it off station and it suddenly is in 103 and that's the classical musical station. When you turn on 103, do you get upset that it's playing classical music or do you know, oh my God, it's on the classical station? You go, no, it's on the classical station. That's resonance. Resonance is whatever it is. You're getting whatever it is you're broadcasting. So your team are the vehicle, the radio set, picking up whatever you're broadcasting. If you want to have a better culture, look in the mirror. The answer is always in the mirror. But you don't want to do that because you want to blame millennials. You want to blame those people. Well, we bought them a foosball table. I take it into the saffron. We bought them a foosball table. We've got them this cappuccino machine and we've got these beanbags. And I go, what happens? I said, let me guess. Nobody uses them. They go, that's right. How do you know? I said, but I think I can work it out. But let's see. I said, first of all, how many times have you sat in here? Oh, I don't sit in here. Well, leadership is by permission. If you don't sit here, then they all go, yeah, it's all for show. If I sit there, he's going to be watching me through his office and he's going to think I'm lazy. I'm not going to go use that. So you've set something up that for them feels like a trap. Number two, did you ask anybody? Well, you know, we read the, the Google report. We read this and blah, blah, blah. Go, I don't give a shit what you read. Did you ask your people what they want? No. Maybe they don't like coffee. Maybe they don't like foosball. Maybe they don't like beanbags. If you didn't ask them, you've not included them. If you've not included them, they don't have any sense of autonomy in the decision. And even if they want to go use it, they probably won't. So you've shot yourself in the foot twice. You're not leading by example, and you didn't bother to ask. Instead, you act like an authoritarian leader, but you dress it up to look like, oh, we're a community. Yeah, I mean, people don't feel heard, and they're not vibrating on the same wavelength. So you're out of alignment. You're out of resonance and exactly. you know there's a huge path that you know you're going down different directions on and there's a lot that can happen there but man i wanted to go back to the emotional source code because that is something just unbelievable that you've uncovered and from what i understand your entire life has been driven by this question why do people do what they do even when they what they do doesn't make sense talk to me a little bit about that even when it doesn't make sense even to them right even to them it's important right because we've all done that We've all done stuff and we went, why the did I do that? Why the hell did I do that? I know better. And then we beat ourselves up going, I know better. So why do we do that? That was the question that I, living in that ghetto world that I lived in, that permeated my brain and drove me in everything I did. It was like I kept looking at really smart people that I knew who were falling into patterns of behavior that were completely aligned with our environment but were out of alignment with who I saw them as. You know, my aunt, for instance, was a beautiful woman. We lived in the ghetto. She, she's the one who taught me about style. She said, you know, if you haven't got any money, you save up some money and you buy a piece. This is what she called it, a piece. What's a piece, Jesse? And she said, it's one piece of clothing that's expensive, but you put it with things that are not expensive, but it's a featured piece. And so because it's high quality, everything around it all your other clothes look like they're all so expensive. Like, so she understood style. She was fantastic. And she was very beautiful. And she was funny. And she was playful. And she would date these absolutely horrible human beings. And she would always have this fantasy that this was the one. And that he's going to treat me like a queen. No, he's going to beat the shit out of you. I can see that. I'm 10 years old and I'm looking at him. And I can see he's going to beat you up. right? And he's going to use you. And then he's going to dispose of you. I could see that. But she would leave these fences. And that was just one example. And you, as you listen to this, might be able to relate to this. She would date the same person with a new face, right? We've all been there. We've all done it. And we go, geez, you know, why didn't I see the signs? That's because of your emotional source code. So the emotional source code. So let's just look at this. People will say to me, I have this behavior. I need to change it. Can we change the behavior? And I go, yeah, of course we can. Will that work, Dove? Can you make sure it sticks? And I go, no, 
oh, why would I work with you? Well, you can, it doesn't matter who you work with, it's not going to stick. Change the behavior, it's not going to stick, right? You're going to have an impulse to keep doing it. They go, oh, so what do we do? Well, your behaviors are all driven by your beliefs and your values. Oh, so we got to deal with the beliefs and values. Yes, okay. So, all right. So if we go to the beliefs and values, will that change the behavior? Yes. Will that make it permanent? No. Will it last longer? Yes. Oh, but how do we get it to be permanent? Well, your beliefs and values don't exist on their own. They're held in place by your identity. Oh, okay. So if we examine my identity, can we change the beliefs and values and behaviors? Absolutely, yes. And they go, well, how do we do that? Well, you can't do that without examining your anatomy of meaning. And you can't do your anatomy of meaning without knowing what your emotional source code is. So they go, this just sounds like so much. I go, yeah, it's big. It's huge. Does that mean I'm stuck? Is this where I am? Absolutely not. I transform people all the time. One of my clients I spoke at the UN with many years ago, he and I spoke in 2015 at the United Nations and the Department of State about the radicalization that we're now seeing that's crazy, right? You know, with the Proud Boys and all of us, we were talking about how to avoid that and what strategies need to be dealt with. And the reason we were invited to go there was because he was an ex-neo-Nazi. He led something called war, white Aryan race in Canada, took the this province, British Columbia, to the Supreme Court twice to try and make it a white province. That's how radical he was. He became my client. And we were being interviewed by a CNN person. And she said, how could you possibly serve this individual, Dove? And I said, well, let me just tell you the story of how we met. He came in my office. He sat there and we're laughing and joking and getting along for 10 minutes. I kind of met him briefly. His friend had paid for the session. And I said, let's stop wasting your time, Tony. And let's stop wasting Damien's money. Why are you here? He looks down at the floor, swallows some golf balls and says, I'm a neo-Nazi. And he starts telling me about some of the things he's done and how he's behaved. And you wouldn't know it. Look at him. There's no tattoos on his face or anything. And he's looking at the floor and he's feeling enormous amounts of shame. And, and I said, so are you still in the movement? And he says, no, I'm not in the movement, but the movement's still in me. I still believe all those things. And he looks up at me and I've got a big Cheshire cat smile. And he's now he's mad. It's like, what are you laughing at? And I said, Tony, do you know my name? And he goes, yeah, of course, it's Dove. I go, do you know where that name comes from? And he goes, no. I go, I'm a Jew. I said, I was born Jewish. And he says, oh, freaking irony, he says. And so the lady who was interviewing us on the panel said, how could you possibly serve him? He wanted to annihilate your people. And I said, because you saw a neo-Nazi. What I saw was a young man who was highly intelligent, highly articulate, needing a place to belong, and instead found a place to fit in that would leverage and use his skills. He wasn't a neo-Nazi. That was just the opportunity that presented itself. And so anybody can be transformed unless they are literally psychopathic. Anybody can be transformed when you get into their emotional source code. So when I got into his emotional source code with him, we transformed his anatomy of meaning. We transformed what all of the things, all the meaning that had come from. This is not a surface exercise. This is deep. But as a result, he could see it built an incredibly false identity, an identity that had taken him to the Supreme Court to stand up and fight for this. Now, how embedded is identity? Let me give you an example. If I ask you, Right now, Tyler, what's the most important thing in life? What would you say? That's a big one. You're putting me on the spot there. I would say service, contribution. What's more important than that? That's the most important one. If you're dead, how do you serve? Through your example of your life. So that's good. Your example of your life that you've left behind. How do you serve if you can't breathe? You personally. I think we have to take the opportunities that we have while we can breathe to make a difference. But I'm saying you can't breathe anymore. You're done. I think it's similar to kind of MLK and the, you know, the, the impact that he had on you, you know, it's, Absolutely. he took advantage of his time. And now because of that, we're having this conversation. And you've done a brilliant job of nailing it. So that's really good. Thank you. So the truth of the matter is the most important thing in life at a basic primal level in everybody's biology and psychology is life, right? When all comes down to all the zombie apocalypse comes, you know, you will do things you thought you couldn't do because you're going to try and survive. Survival, right? We're all, you know, we're animals at the basic level. Okay. So I say to people, is that the most important thing? They go, oh yeah, I guess it is. Now I think about it. And they go, actually it's not. And they go, what do you mean? I say, have you ever heard of somebody who strapped a bump to themselves and blew themselves up? And they go, oh yeah, of course. Why would they do that if the most important thing is life? They go, I don't know. Because identity is more important than life. It's the identity. Now the identity you attach yourself to can be like MLK and have an impact on me as a 10-year-old kid. 
but it can also be to, you know, be a jihadist and do whatever you decide to do. And I'm not here to judge either of those things. That's fine. You do what you want to do. But my point is this, is your identity is that you'll give your life up for your identity. So it's the most difficult thing in the world to change. And identity does not change without crisis. Now, let me repeat that. Identity does not change without crisis. So if you, right now, as you listen, watch this, I'm making five mil a year. I'm just making up a silly number. I realize that that's probably small for some people and very large for others. Okay. You're making five mil a year. You live in a nice house. You've got a beautiful car. You've got a beautiful partner. On the surface, it all looks great, but you're miserable as all sin. You're not going to let anybody know because your identity is more important. And your identity is you're a happy guy and you, you're the one with the champagne and you're the one with the yacht and you're the, you know, and you're all that shit that we get to see on the internet about what success is. You know, you're Instagram happy. Okay. But your internal is miserable because the identity you've built doesn't have any depth to it. It's now a surface representation of who you are. That is a crisis. We call that, quote, an identity crisis. We might call it midlife crisis. Now, there are catalysts for that. In my case, it was falling off a mountain, getting smashed to pieces. For some people, it's a car crash. For some people, it's a bankruptcy. It's a divorce. It's a horrible diagnosis. It's the loss of a loved one. There's a million reasons it could be. And at that point, we go, I've got to re-examine my life. The challenge is that that opportunity comes and everybody, so when I fell off the mountain, people go, that must have changed your life. And I say, actually, now I realize it didn't. And they go, what do you mean? It embedded me. Embedded you in what? My ego, my identity. When I fell, and I fell 120 feet, got smashed to pieces, I think 11 or 12 reconstructive surgeries, initially, I was walking around with my jaws wired together. My jaw was in five separate pieces, right? And they're putting it together, and I'm talking through wire. And people are saying, how are you doing? And through that wire, I'd say, I'm great. I'm coming back. It was a lie. I wasn't great. I wasn't coming back. But my identity was, I was an ex-boxer ex-martial artist, ex-ghetto kid, ex-leader, ran businesses. You're not putting me down, man. The world has tried to put me down for a thousand years. This is not going to happen. So it was the identity was getting more deeply embedded. And it wasn't until probably about a year and a half later, and I was out with my friends. My friends were very good. They came and took me out and tried to give me a night out, make cheer me up. And I had no money. I'd blown everything. And I'd go out with them and I'd fake laugh. You know, you go out and <laughs> I was because I was just miserable. And every time I'd go out with him, I'd feel worse because I'd realize, you know, I'm just never going to laugh again. I'm never going to be funny again. I'm never going to. It's over. But meanwhile, I'm telling everybody else, I'm great and I'm coming back. And one night we went out with the lads and I had a good laugh. It was the, fir it was the first week the wires were off and I had a good night. I had some fun and it was like, maybe I am coming back. And I had this spark of hope within me. It felt like it was possible. And I came through the back of the house and I opened the kitchen door and the light from outside illuminated the floor and across the floor was garbage everywhere. There were coffee grinds and meat packaging and empty cans. It smelled horrible. There was kitty litter. It was all over the floor. And I went from that moment of hope, that spark of hope and pure and joy to pure rage. I was infuriated. I knew exactly who had done this and I wanted, in all honesty, to kill that individual. And I went in this rage looking for that individual. And when I got into the living room, there curled up and all comfy on the couch was the responsible individual was there. And I lifted my hand to strike, which is not who I am. I'm not a violent person. And I stopped myself immediately and instead scooped up my cat into my arms, pulled him to my chest. And he was stiff and he was cold and he was dead. He died of distemper. He'd been sick. I didn't know. He died of distemper and had had some kind of seizure or something and pulled everything over. And I fell to my knees and I began to weep. I had not weeped for my fall. I had not allowed myself to cry and feel the loss of who I had been. And I was just two minutes into that when I realized I'm not crying for the cat. I'm crying for the loss of who I was. And I finally allowed myself to recognize that that identity was dying. And I had to let it die. I had to let it die. And it, that was the moment of change. The moment, so remember, I'm great, I'm coming back, and then feeling like I could, and it could all go back to normal. 
the moment of change is when you're in the crisis and then it could go back to normal and you choose another path. So if you've had a friend who had a heart attack really young and, you know, and they were very successful and they worked 70 hours, 80 hours, 90 hours a week, you know, and then they have the heart attack and they're in the hospital and you go see them and they go, oh my God, I just woken me up. I realized I got to, was missing my old kids. I'm missing my marriage. You know, I, I got to change around. And then you bump into them four months later and they're doing the same shit they were always doing. And you go, Why? oh, it's just who I am. See that comment? This is who I am. It's an identity statement. They will give up their life. They will give up their family. They will give up their loves to hold on to this identity. That's how addicted we get to it. It's an addiction. It's a neurochemical addiction. So we get addicted to it and we go back to it. But the moment of change is when it could go back to normal. When you're given that opportunity and you say, got to go another way. And that meant that my journey was much longer and harder and the recovery was harder. And so my work now privately has found a way to condense all that, go right to the emotional source code, go to the anatomy of meaning, give you the identity that is you. So I'm not, I'm not putting anything on you. It's like strip away. Let's find this. But people are afraid of that. I understand. But as Joseph Campbell said, the treasure we seek can only be found in the cave we fear to step into. It's, we've got to step into that darkness. We've got to step into that unknown. And if you try and do that on your own because you're, you're an egomaniac like I used to be, and you're so, you know, I, I can do anything, then you can. You can do all kinds of things. You can't do this. You cannot do this journey alone. It's very simple. A fish cannot describe water. You cannot describe your own water. You're swimming in your own shit, and you got to look at that. And you need somebody who can guide you. Somebody can guide you into that darkness because on the other side of that is a life that is so full and so rich and so deep. And I always say to my clients, I'm not here to help you be more successful. You already know how to do that. But what I can tell you is inevitably you will be. And they go, why do you say that? I go, it just, it's just what happens. I never planned it that way. But all my clients, they see magnitudes more of success, but it's coming from a different place. And they're fulfilled and they're deeply connected because they've connected to that soulful part of themselves. And that's not a religious term. It's this term that is beyond the mind. It is this term beyond the identity. It is this term that is beyond how the world thinks I should be. But to me, feeling so deeply connected that I can be in love with the person in front of me without it having any sexual or any other connotations is that I can love you for who you are, even if I don't like your behavior. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out CF Capital. CF Capital is the premier boutique real estate investment firm in the Midwest and Southeast region of the United States. We are a national real estate investment firm with a purpose. We provide property investment and asset management solutions to help passive investors maximize returns on high value multifamily communities. But our investments go far beyond acquisitions. We invest in people. We are in the business of elevating communities and raising the bar for everyone within our ecosystem. CF Capital is a real estate investment firm focused on the acquisition and operation of multifamily assets. We confidently deliver tax advantage, stable cash flow, and capital appreciation with a margin of safety. By investing alongside our team, investors can preserve and grow their wealth without having to deal with tenants, termites, or toilets. Investors come and stay for the outsized returns we create in our deals while appreciating the ancillary opportunity to make a bigger impact that only CF Capital can provide. If you're an investor and want to invest with us, here's how. Learn more about CF Capital at cfcapllc.com or by simply clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. We will see you on the inside of this powerful community. So let's elevate communities together. And this is for people who are really looking for something more, but they just may not know what that is. And I know that that is, you know, that probably is speaking directly to many of the listeners today. And I, I'd love to just follow up with you and, you know, on identity, you know, to be able to make that transformation, you mentioned, you know, it's really got to be a crisis. It's got to be, you know, you, you've got to go through a grieving process to where then you allow yourself to go into the unknown. The other thing too, that I would love to just kind of rehash and some of the things that I've loved studying about your work is you know, this transformation can help us understand the massive blind spots in our lives, businesses and finances and through our relationships, you know, the filters with, with which we're making decisions across the board. You know, this is really what it comes down to when you're talking about identity. That's really the basis of doing things that we know are not the right thing to do, but we still can't really explain why. But tell me, can people make a transformation 
without going through some sort of tragedy or crisis? Or you feel like, I mean, tell, tell me a little bit about that. That's a great question, Tyler. Thank you. So the answer is that, as I said, most people need a crisis. Now, let's look at how do you determine a crisis? Hmm. So do you need a plane crash? Do you need a falling off a mountain? Do you need a heart surgery? What if a crisis is a twist of your ankle that awakens you? What if a crisis is, is simply a way of paying attention? So the way I explain it is this. This is just my, my metaphor for it. Think of it this way. I like to say that the soul whispers, that your soul is always whispering you onto your most authentic and soulful path. But we're busy and it's noisy. The world is a noisy place. It's never been noisier. We've never been more distracted. Okay, so we, we don't really pay attention because so the soul's whispering. It's like, what's that? Okay, yeah, whatever, right? And so after it whispers for a while, maybe it'll speak. But there's a lot of speaking going on. And eventually, it might even shout. And eventually, it might slap you in the head or, in my case, throw you off a mountain, right? But the truth of the matter is, that was my fourth fall. It wasn't my first. I fell 120 feet, but I'd fallen 70 feet. That should have been enough to wake somebody up, right? I had other, two other major falls as well in between those. But the truth of the matter is it, it's the stopping and paying attention and with this. So just put this in your brain for a minute. I am always in communication with the highest and greatest part of myself if I can listen. So if each day you sit down, highly recommend that you do this, whether you work with me or you read any of my books or you do your own stuff, this is a great place to start. Just sit down and say, when might my soul have been whispering to me today? Well, you know, I, I snapped at that person in the coffee shop. What if that was a whisper? What if that was a way to have you pay attention? What if you didn't just go, oh, yeah, I was irritable and I was impatient? Yeah, that's true. But what if that was a whisper? What's the message in it? Oh, I twisted my ankle today. What if that was a whisper? What if that was telling you to slow down? that maybe you're not paying attention to things. What if when my wife was upset with me about this thing and I kind of dismissed her, that that was a clue. That was a whisper from that soulful part of myself. Because you can decide when the crisis is and you can decide how big the crisis is. And the problem is because of our ego and our identity addiction, it often has to be massive, but it doesn't always. So for instance, one of my clients right now, um, he just sold his company for about half a billion dollars. Nice, not bad. All right, you know, you can't live on it, but it's a decent start. And he said, I'm thinking about what's next. And he had been introduced to me by somebody else, not really about working with me. He just, you know, he said, oh, I was talking to Franco and he said to talk to you about, you know, what's next in my life. He goes, I'm thinking about doing this. I'm thinking about doing that. And he's telling me all these things. And I said to him, I asked him this question, when did your soul first whisper to you that, the path you're on might not be your own. And he went, well, that's ridiculous. And I said, okay, just think about it. Let's have another conversation later. And he came back and talking to him about a week later. And he goes, because my clients speak to me this way because I speak to them that way. He goes, you bastard. That, that was a mind worm. He goes, I could not get that out of my head. And he goes, I was 19, 19, just arrived at Cambridge University. He's 64 years old. He said, I was 19. I just arrived at Cambridge University. He said, and I laid on my bed and I was thinking about the girl back in Calgary that I'd left. And he said, and I left her to pursue this. And he goes, and I, he says, I still think it was the right thing to do. He goes, but my mind whispered to me, or as you say, my soul whispered to me, what did she give you that you can't find here? And he said, and I thought that that meant I should have stayed with her. He goes, I realize now that that wasn't what it was. He goes, but it's only because you asked me that question. He goes, all my life I've been pursuing the thing that she gave me that I couldn't get, even with a half billion dollar company, even with three houses, one of which is on a beautiful island and a boat and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He goes, I get it now. And I go, yeah, we're all looking for something. Every And this is the key for your result to remember. Right now, as you enter into your life, as you step out into the world, I want to have you go away with something. And that's this. Everybody you meet, billionaires, Oscar-winning actors, gold medal athletes, the wealthiest of the wealthy magnets and icons and whatever you want. I want you to get this. Everyone you meet is in pain. Everybody has a pain. You can't see it, but everybody is hurting and everybody is trying to feel better. And the problem is most people don't stop long enough to ask, how can I feel better without going external? 
So they try to feel better by collecting another million. I have clients who've done this. You know, I'll feel better when I get when I get to be a millionaire. Well, yeah, that was great, but I know I realize now that million's not really a million, like it was when I was a kid. It, it's ten million. Okay, now you're at ten. How is it? I mean, it was fantastic for a week or two. One of my clients, I, this is a guy I was interviewing possibly to work with him, and I, it was going to be a client, and I said no to him. And I said, "What car do you drive?" He said, "A Rolls." I said, "When did you get it?" He goes, "Oh, I, very recently." Oh, beautiful. Tell me. And he says, I had it like four weeks. I said, what was it like the f- day you picked it up? He goes, oh my God. He goes, it was a dream come true. I always wanted a Rolls since I was a kid. I was like, oh, that's fantastic. He goes, living in East London, you know, it was poor. And I dreamed, I saw these Rolls Royces going down into the West End and I wanted a Rolls. And I go, I go it must have felt fantastic. He goes, it did. I said, now walk me into it. You sit in the, sit in the Rolls. I was like, he goes, oh my God, it's, it's heaven. Right? I said, and you're driving it? And he goes, amazing. I said, how many of your friends did you call while you drove? He goes, everybody. I drove around and met people and took them for little drives in my role. And I said, that's fantastic. I said, it was pretty exciting, right? And he goes, yeah. I said, the next morning when you got up and you got in your roles, how was it? It was pretty amazing. I said, as amazing as it was when you got it? He goes, maybe a little bit less, but it was pretty amazing. I said, how is it getting in the roles now, one month into he goes, well, it's still pretty, it's an amazing vehicle. I go, no, I'm not talking about the technology of it. How does it feel? He goes, it's a car. He goes, it's a spectacular car, but it's a car. And I go, how many of those things will you have to buy to stay in that feeling that you had when you got the rolls? He goes, I bought a lot of stuff. And I said, so what actually will fill that gap? And he goes, that's what I don't know. And I said, yes, you keep purchasing things to fill a hole that cannot be filled from the outside. And until you have the courage to look at what it is, this is a guy who makes a million a week, right? Until you have the courage to look at what it is, you're going to keep throwing things at it. He goes, I got to tell you the truth. I said, what? He goes, I took the rolls back this morning. He goes, I took and gave them back and said, I don't want it. And I said, why? He goes, because I realized it wasn't giving me what I wanted. And I said, well, what will? And he goes, I don't know. And I said, I do. And he said, well, what is it? I said, oh, I'm not going to tell you. And he goes, are you keeping it a secret from me? And I said, no, I know how to get to what it is. I don't know what it is. You don't know how to get to it, but I can guide you to get to it. But I can tell you there's nothing in the external world that's going to give it to you. We're all searching for something that we needed but couldn't get. By going through the emotional source code, you discover what that is. And when you discover what it is, your anatomy of meaning changes. When your anatomy of meaning changes, you get to own your original identity, the truth of who you are, which transforms your beliefs, it transforms your values, and it transforms the way you behave. You don't have to try and behave differently because that's not aligned with your identity. Once it's not aligned with your identity, you have no interest in it. I'm done. Okay. Living a self-actualized life. That's what it is. You know, it's transforming from that, you know, we need, you know, basic life to living a life that is meaningful to us in alignment with what is our resonance. You got it. You nailed it beautifully. And so people will ask me, well, what's your purpose? Because I say, you know, have you found your purpose? Oh, well, you know, I read Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. That's great. And as the book says, start with why. It doesn't say end with why. What do you mean? Your emotional source code is the why of your why. It's what's underneath that that you can't find on your own. Again, a fish can't describe water. It's the why of your why. It's what's underneath that. But when you get to that, there's such beauty, such magnificence, and such generosity of spirit there that it's beautiful. You want to serve in the world. And it brings us full circle, Tyler. Thank you. Because it really does. It brings us full circle. Because when people ask me my purpose, you know, I can give you all the pieces of it. But the simplicity of it is this. To serve those who will never know my name and whose name I may never know. Why? Martin Luther King never knew my name. I never knew his until that moment. It's that impact that you leave, as you said, way after you're gone. And if you're not driven by that, then maybe just take a moment and just ask yourself that question. I deal with lots of people who are multi-generational family wealth, three, four, five generations. I see businesses that are multi-billion dollar businesses go down the toilet because of a generational problem. Why? because they've not done the emotional source code of the family and of the individuals. And so you get a fight going on because somebody in that line of 
you know, how do we serve here? It's saying, I'm not aligned with your purpose. And I don't know what mine is, but I don't want to do this. And when we bring them together and we find others oh, this common purpose, their businesses explode because they want to be there because it's not about money. Although they make a lot of money, it's not about the money. It's this magnificent impact that is multi-generational over time. Dove, this is just absolutely ground shaking. I mean, earth shattering, unbelievably powerful conversation. I just want to thank you so much for spending time with us. And, you know, people are getting an opportunity to have a look into one of the world's greatest minds, multidisciplinary learning, studying, growth and service. And so I just want to thank you so much. I want to transition briefly into the rapid fire section of the podcast before we wrap today, because man, we are given tremendous gifts to the listeners today. So before I let you go, I want to talk to you about the rare air questionnaire. It is all about being uncommon. It is uncommon to look within and ask these types of questions and be willing to enter the darkness and go through that tremendous discomfort to shift that identity with what is in resonance with your soul. And as corny as all of that may sound to some people, I mean, this is absolutely transformative, not only for yourself, for your business, for your organization, for your family, for your ancestors, and for humanity. I mean, this is what an amazing conversation. If you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you have read over the past few years with your multidisciplinary learning, what would those be and why? First book would be my Bible. Uh, my Bible is called The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. It's a book of poetry. Poetry? Come on. It's not your rhyming poetry. It's short allegories. So it's the stories of this great high priestess who's asking the prophet, she says, speak to us of children. And he speaks of children. Your children are not your children. They are life's children. They are the arrows and you are the bow, right? I mean, it's just beautiful. It talks about friendship, talks about work. Work is love made manifest. I mean, it's beautiful. So I carry it with me wherever I go. I use it to remind me of how to be in the world. It is the book that influenced me the most and continues to influence me the most. Hugh Everett the Third's multidimensional reality was profound for me. I don't even know how available it is. It was written in, in the 50s. It is magnificent, but it, it's not, quote, an easy read. But it, it just but allowing you to break open your own thinking around that. There's another book that The Road Less Traveled, M. Scott Peck, that I read very early 80s. It was a transformational book for me because I was already a therapist and, and I was reading this book but written by uh, a military psychiatrist. M. Scott Peck was a military psychiatrist. And I'd been trained in the same way he was, which was this idea that we have to be these neutral sounding boards for our patients. And I, never, I would never allow my clients to call themselves patients. They were clients. And because I used to say, if you're sick, you can't work with me right? I don't believe you're sick, so you're not a patient. And I remember having this inner turmoil about what I was taught about how I was supposed to be with these people. And then a red peck book. And he said, he said that he was trained to be this neutral person. And he said, but if I can't, if I don't fall in love with you, I can't help you. And that transformed the way that I saw the people I worked with. And so, you know, to work with me, there's a qualification process and there's a whole bunch of things you have to do to qualify. I've been asked, I was asked recently by a client, why did I go through all that? And I said, A, I have to get full assessment, but the bottom line is I have to find out if I can fall in love with you. And I go, what? And I go, not romantically, not sexually, but I have to know that I can care with all of my heart and soul for you because there's going to be times when you're going to hate me and you're going to say, I'm going to fight for your soul, not for you, not for your identity, not for your ego. I will battle your own ego in order to serve your soul. So those books really impacted me. The truth of the matter is there are many, many, many books that have had enormous amounts of influence on me, but my number one always is Khalil Gibran, the prophet. Beautiful stuff. I'm, I can't wait to pick those up myself. We'll put links in the show notes for the listeners so they can find those books. Hopefully, if we can find multidimensional reality as well. Hugh Everett the third, Outstanding. And uh, I'd love to ask you just a couple more questions before I let you go. If you had to point to, and this is going to be challenging, I think for you, the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis, what would that be and why? Oh, that's really actually quite easy. You can see it right over my shoulder if you've seen this on video. And it is at the end of every show, I say, stay curious, my friends, stay curious. I elevate my life through curiosity. And the first level of curiosity is how can I love this person? Sometimes to love this person means I'm going to say something that is going to upset you. See, we have this ridiculous new age idea that love is soft and fluffy 
right? There is a saying, the truth hurts, right? But the truth hurts before it sets us free. And so I will always try to come at you with as much compassion and caring and love as I can. But sometimes you need a swift kick in the ego to pay attention to the person who loves you is not going to let you get away with this. There's this new age bullshit idea of unconditional love. If you're loving unconditionally, you're a very unhealthy, psychologically, a very unhealthy individual. And you go, well, you know, so I'll give you an example. You've got a dog. Yes, it's okay. You've got a dog and the dog comes in and takes shit on the rug as a puppy. And you go, oh, it's so cute. It's okay. Right. And you clean it up. And the dog does it again and again and again. And then after about several months and a lot of poop, you know, you've lost your rag now. You've lost your temper. And one day you come in and you whack the, kick the dog hard. Dog looks and goes, what the hell's wrong? Isn't this the toilet? But you think you were being unconditionally loving. What you were doing was teaching the dog permission. Again, leadership is by permission that this is the toilet. If you don't have conditions around your love, you're saying, please come and shit on my rug. My rug might be my self-worth, my self-esteem, my caring. So we need boundaries, not walls, boundaries. Say, listen, I love you, but you don't get to treat me that way. I love you enough to let you go if you want to be abusive. I love you enough to say, no, thank you. So love is, has to have those hard boundaries that say, you know, this is what healthy love looks like. So you've got to be curious enough. If you want to elevate yourself, you be, number one, be curious about what you already believe, about what you're already certain of. What, and so I ask you right now as you listen, what are you curious of? What are you most curious about? Write that down. Great. Now I ask you, what are you most certain about? And you write that down. Now let me ask you, which one do you ask more questions about? And you just go, well, the one I'm more curious about. Yeah. Now flip that over onto what you most know about. What are you most certain about? Because the three words that will kill you are, I know that. The moment you say, I know that, you have shut down your mind. You've shut down your ability to learn. So instead of saying, I know that, it'll come up. Everybody has an ego, mine too. And he'll come up with, I know that, and ask the question, do I? And your mind will say, yes. And you say, could I know more? Yeah, but not from this idiot. Well, what if they know something you don't know that, yeah, they sound like an idiot now, but what if you listen a little further and you'll learn something more? Okay. I don't think so, but okay. You've got to be willing to wrestle that ego that wants to say, I know that. And even if you get to, I absolutely know this, the question is, am I using it? Because you can know something and not use it. We've all been down that road, right? Knowledge is not what transforms us. Transformation comes from the application of the knowledge. So stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. This will elevate your life. And stay curious about what you think you know. And stay curious about how you can be curious in a state of love. Dove, this is so good, man. And your whole life has been, you know, really one of service. And really, that's where your life is today. And, you know, contributing so much to the world's most powerful people. And it is really, really remarkable. My last question for you is really around that. I mean, what's the biggest way that you elevate others around you? I mean, if you had to summarize and really hone that in, I mean, what would you say about that? Again, it's simple, but not easy. I am willing to see them. Everybody you will ever meet. Kim Kardashian, she's about as seen as you can get, is desperate to be seen. Everybody you meet is feeling pain and they're trying to feel better. And one of the ways you can make them feel better is to see them. In my office in the city, there's a guy who sits outside with, on a piece of cardboard with his cup and asks for change. And one day a client came into my office and said, you know, I just stood in a puddle out there. I'm sorry. And I said, it's okay. And he goes, it might have been P. And I go, why? And he goes, well, there's a homeless guy out there collecting money. I said, it wasn't P. And he said, how do you know? I said, let me ask you, what's the guy's name? And he goes, what guy? The guy, the guy collecting money. He goes, I don't know. So why don't you know? He goes, I didn't ask him. Why didn't you ask him? I, don't, I never thought to ask him. Did you look him in the eye? No. Why not? Well, I was in a hurry to get here. Yeah, that's the problem. The thing you can give any human being is dignity. I said, now go away. At the end of the session, go away. Next time you come, Make sure you come knowing his name and you know his story. And he says, do you know it? I said, I do. No, I didn't tell him, but I told him later. His name is John. The reason he's on the street is because he was a hardworking guy who got leukemia, got very, very sick, ended up being evicted from his home. Wonderful guy who I would sit next to on the floor. He didn't ever peed on the floor. He never did any of that stuff. And when I would pull my car up, he would guide me into the part, into the spout, and he would feed the meter for me. And I'd come out and I'd say, how much do I owe you, John? And he'd go, 75 cents. I go, okay. And I give him 70. And oftentimes I wouldn't give him any money. Give him 75 cents. 
but I would sit with him and have a conversation with him and chat with him, find out about his family. I knew him as a human being and gave him dignity. Now, of course, every now and then I would give him some money. Now, I wouldn't give him a quarter. I'd give him 20 bucks, right? You know, how is that going to change my life? But it's going to change his. Gave him dignity. Walk through the world giving people dignity. See them. You want to be a better human being, see other human beings. Don't just see the people you're trying to impress. Because think about it. When you meet somebody you're trying to impress, what do you want? You're this big, powerful hoo-ha of a human being in your world. And then you walk into this other world with somebody you're trying to impress. What do you want? You want them to see you. Suddenly, you're the little guy. So start looking for the little guys you can see. As you walk down the street, stop looking at your bloody phone or at the floor and look people in the eye and say, hey, smile. Hi. Oh, I can't do that. It's too far. No, it's not. I've walked through some of the roughest places in the world. Never had a problem in my life. Hi. How you doing? How you doing? Smile. Be kind. Be gentle. Be compassionate. Be give. You're going to give something. Give dignity. The dignity of seeing the human being as whole. Dove, I'm I'm searching for the words. You know, powerful does not come close to really describing this conversation. I just want to thank you so much for spending time. I want to acknowledge you for giving us the dignity of your time today and giving the dignity of you know, or really giving us the idea of how we can transform not only our, our own life, elevate to the next level and beyond, by the way, but also not forget about giving dignity to everyone else who just wants to be seen. Dove, tell the listeners where they can find you, where they can learn more about you. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate it. You can find out more about me at dovebaron.com. If you're watching this, you can see it on the screen. It's on my banner there. D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. Dove Baron. You can write to me personally. Yes, I know. I'm insane. I'm going to give you my personal email address. It's dove at dovebaron.com. D-O-V at D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. You can find me, of course, on LinkedIn on Instagram, on Twitter, on those kinds of places. We also have a YouTube channel with about a thousand videos. They're absolutely free, of course. Uh, they're available to you. I also write for Medium under The Curious Leader. So just go to Medium and then look for Curious Leader and you'll find my articles there. There's only one Dove Baron. And if you Google me, you'll get more things you can possibly cope with. And if I can be of service to you, reach out to me. But, you know, I want to just say one more thing before we finish. Todd. Is that okay? Absolutely, please. Okay, so listen. If you're watching or listening this and you've found any value in it, I want you to understand I have two podcasts. I know what it takes to put a podcast together. And it's a bloody one-way street. We, we, you know, Tyler goes out, finds people like me. You know, my hours are not cheap, right? He finds these amazing guests that he's had on for you, right? He's had amazing guests who won't even do other shows. He finds these people, again, very expensive for the hour. And they give you their hour because of the work Tyler does in putting the show together, a quality show to bring to you. Why the hell are you hoarding it? Stop hoarding it. Share it with others. Share the show with other people. Write to Tyler. Tell him what you got out of this episode or any episode. Tell him what the value was. And moreover, what are you going to do with it? And please, you have my email address, dov at dovbaron.com. Write to me. Tell me what you got out of this episode. Tell me what you're going to do with it. I heard from somebody I'd done a show eight years ago who wrote to me last week. It was so cool. It was so wonderful. And I was so grateful for that. But listen, all the work and effort that goes in, you've got to go onto Apple or wherever it is, rate, review, subscribe, because it makes a massive difference to Tyler and to the show. Because we all know the world is a world of algorithms now. Do that. Share the show with everybody you know. Get it out there. Share the knowledge. Be generous. This is an abundant universe. And you're not going to become wealthier by hoarding. You're going to come wealthier by sharing, including the knowledge of the insights that you got today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your commitment to your evolution by listening. I appreciate it. I am honored for your engagement with us. I really sincerely thank you. And of course, as always, Stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. Dove, I cannot thank you enough for those kind words. And I feel like this is the beautiful beginning of an amazing friendship together again. Dove, thank you so much for being on the show. And we'll look forward to part two at some point in the, in the future. Thank you. Elevate Nation, what can I say that has not been said in this podcast, in this episode? What a transformative opportunity to sit down with Dove Barron and... I mean, I had so many additional topics that I was thinking of covering, but I think it was perfect in the way that we did it today and the way that Dove showed up to help us understand our potential transformation. And by the way, our transformation never ends. This is a journey. This is a process. 
constant and never ending improvement starts with the foundation of our identity. And there is a lot that we can dive into and immerse ourselves into stepping into that transformation and stepping into the right transformation instead of buying things or doing things or, you know, aligning with an identity that does not serve really the true essence of who we are and who we're meant to be. We're spinning our wheels. And so let's not do that. So I just want to invite you to re-listen to this podcast. I don't know how many times. I mean, it's got to be, it's at least two times. I mean, there's a repetition is obviously the mother of all skill, but what we talked about today was multifaceted, multidimensional. And I really want to encourage you to immerse yourself in this. And I also want to encourage you to have a discussion with a friend. I just want to thank Dove for those kind words at the end talking about sharing this episode, of course, you know, we invite you to do that. We would love for you to do that. And I invite you to have a conversation about this. What was it that you learned about yourself? What was it? Maybe what have you been doing that doesn't really serve who you really are? Or what curiosity do you have about yourself that maybe you were not aware to even ask? prior to listening to this conversation. Have that discussion. Identify your top one, two, or three distinctions or takeaways from this episode. By the way, there's probably many, but focus on priorities. What's your highest priority to focus on, to take action on? Because if I know, you know, if I, if I already know something, if I'm certain of something and I'm certain that that works, well, then why am I not doing it? Why am I not using it? I mean, there's just, this is such a great episode. I just want to encourage you to ultimately take massive action. That's the most important calling card here is to take massive action on what you learned today. Until next time, Elevate Nation, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.